Welcome to Season 4 of the Ultimate Birth Partner Podcast. I am Sally Ann Beresford, a birthkeeper, author and antenatal educator. My mission is to ensure that pregnant women and anyone who supports them feels well prepared for birth on a deep level. This podcast's aim is to offer knowledge and wisdom on topics that will help you discover not only how to step into your power and achieve your dream birth, but know why it is so important to you. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. Have I got a treat for you? This week we are chatting with Mike, who is Helen's husband, and he's going to be giving us a very special part three, where he's going to be telling us his version of the events of both birth stories. So enjoy this episode with Mike because it really is a wonderful insight into the role of a birth partner and the level of preparation that he did in order to prepare for Hope's birth, which was their second birth experience. Enjoy. Mike, welcome to the podcast. I'm so grateful to have this conversation with you and to hear the other side of Helen's story, which we've been listening to for the last couple of weeks. So welcome and thank you. And would you like to just start by introducing yourself? Sure. First of all, thank you for giving me this opportunity to come on and and talk and share my experiences with Helen and the birth of both of our daughters. My name is Mike. I'm an energy healer, holistic coach, children's author, and yeah, like you said, uh, husband to Helen, who's who's had a couple of episodes with you. And yeah, I'm really excited just to be here and and to talk about what happened and what I took from it and what I learned really. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we can't not start at the beginning really, because the birth of your first daughter was such a, a journey that you both went on, but obviously hearing how Helen was severely affected by that birth. Do you want to start there and talk to us about what it was like for you? Because obviously you must have been really excited for this birth, really looking forward to having a child enter yeah. your family. And that, that journey wasn't what you was expecting, I'm sure. Yeah, I think, first of all, to start off with, I think what's normally the case with planned pregnancies anyway, is that you go into this concept of of having a baby with wide-eyed wonderment and, and excitement and anticipation. And I always remember my mum's turning to me a, a couple of months before Amelia was born and saying, so are you ready? And me kind of going, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. You know, I've read all the books. And at that time, it's kind of the usual what to expect books from having a baby, but not actually the the process of bringing her into the world type thing. And I think we probably had the experience of what is a very common story, which is we had been told to do things like if we had reduced movement to head to triage straight away and count the kicks during the day and and all of those types of things, which we did. And, and you know, the last 
couple of months before Amelia was born, we must have been in and out of triage, you know, three, four times. And there was nothing wrong. And and then they told us she was measuring big, which obviously brought about uh, its own sort of anxiety and worries and things that you don't particularly read or, or prepare too much for because you're just expecting this little seven and a half pound bundle of joy that, that's smiling and, and perfect. And, and then to be told we were being induced, I was there going, okay, great. You know, that means she's coming, but not really understanding what the process of induction was. And then that's when it it became really difficult and it affected us out of nowhere, really. The the whole induction process was really difficult for Helen, which I know she's talked about on her episodes with the failed pessaries and, and the gas and air and the, the morphine and then the two and a half day labor. And, you know, it, it, it was one kind of one thing after another. And if I'm kind of here to talk about the, the partner's side of things, it kind of hit me out of nowhere because firstly, I, d- I don't think I'd read enough on the actual labor and the actual the event of giving birth. I don't think I'd read anywhere near enough of it, or if I had it at all, in the wrong sort of thing and just understanding that she needed to stay hydrated and energy boosts and in our case, frozen jelly babies and things like that. And so to see when Helen went into that course of cluster contractions and having to have the pessaries put back in, which from my point of view was extremely difficult to witness because I, I like to think of myself as a very present husband and I'm very protective just because of our story and, and what we had been through as a family. So to see her going through something physically as difficult as it was, and essentially me sitting there not being able to do anything to help or even to understand what she was going through and, and to to have the courage or the confidence to to ask questions or to tell someone or speak to someone that was in the hospital was really, really difficult. And then from there, the subsequent domino effect that happened with her labor sent me into an even worse spiral of, of observation, I guess, if that's the right terminology in that. I didn't know what to do. I was a bystander, or at least I felt like I was. And it was very hard to control my emotions in that regard because it was, I didn't know, first of all, what the emotions were that I was experiencing, but also the ways in which it would affect me afterwards. And that was really something that that I struggled with, which is why with the birth of our second daughter, we want to do things completely differently. Yeah. And why, to me, it was super, super important to be able to not only be savvy or at least clued up on the beauty of choice, (laughs) which was something we knew nothing about, that we could choose what we wanted to do, but also just small things that are there to help Helen, whether it's terminology, being able to comfort her in the right way, even in the smallest of ways, those things were completely unknown to me the first time. So the second time was, it was just super, super important to be there Mm. with the right knowledge. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Let's just go back to the induction conversation about, because I always describe it when you're talking about the cascade of intervention as a little bit like mm. you get on the train at one station, but you can't get off. Other people get on at different points along the way. But once you're on the train, there is no getting off. And all you can see is this train hurtling yeah. on and on and on and on. And the powerlessness that you feel when you're watching it, you can't ever, I don't believe you can't ever imagine the consequences could be as great as they end up being. Because there's a lot of people talk in the birth world about the fact that all a doctor or a midwife is really keen for is a healthy baby in the basket at the end of the journey. So you get through the birth and your baby is alive. But actually, that's really not the whole picture, is it? Because when you're quite broken from the experience, the fact that your baby is alive and everybody's going, oh, well, at least you've got a healthy baby and that's all that matters. That's actually really not the right thing to say to people who've been through this experience. And yet it seems to be the common narrative of what is said to people to help pacify them and to alleviate the fact that they've had this horrific experience. And so when you are in a situation whereby somebody is recommending an intervention like an induction, now that you've been through the second birth and you know what you know now, what would you go back and say to yourself first time round if you could? Would, would there be anything that you would like Mike to know? I think there's loads that I'd love for him to know. I think for, for me personally and for, don't get me wrong, Helen and I are big believers in everything's meant to happen for a reason. Yeah, me too. Um, and we believe she was meant to go through the first birth the way she did so that yeah. the second time she could learn and then be able to use that and pass that on and to spread that message. Um, so we're, in a way, we're very grateful for that. If that wasn't the case, I would, first of all, I would really encourage anyone not to be induced unless it was for severe emergency because Helen was induced on her due date. Now, this her first baby, yes, she was measuring big and they were obviously talking about shoulder dystocia and all, all those things that kind of come with big babies, but... Everything else, she was healthy throughout the pregnancy. There was no other issues. Helen wasn't high risk at all. And so she was never given the opportunity to be able to do it in the most natural way, which, again, in my opinion, is really the most important way. Having seen Helen deliver Hope, our second daughter, the way she did, my kind of whole perspective on on the idea of pregnancy and labor and giving birth completely changed. It went from one end of the spectrum to the other. So the first thing I'd say to Mike from eight years ago is ask questions, encourage Helen to, to trust herself and her body. And, and let's not forget, women have been doing this for hundreds of thousands, millions of years, you know, for that. and it's what their bodies are designed to do. And going back to what you said about the, the narrative is, 
well, at least you've got a healthy baby. That's not the only important thing in all of this because the way in which it affected Helen and I afterwards affected our, or at least in my opinion, my ability as a father. It affected Helen's connection with Amelia when she was initially here, which in turn is having an impact on the child. So, so yes, you have a healthy baby physically, but emotionally, and that connection with the parents was affected. And again, looking at the physical health of baby, if she wants the best start to life, then mum has to be completely healthy as well, or at least in a state whereby her healing process is quicker than what it should be after an intervention. So yeah, I think there's there's a real message to old Michael, trust, be patient, because there is an eagerness to kind of get them into the world and, and to start that life, that process, that journey of being parents and having the children there but the baby will know when it wants to come um yeah. similarly the mom and baby have a communication especially when she's in the womb to understand when everything's ready and, and when they're both prepared fully for what they're going to go through however long or short it is because that's yeah. about hormones isn't it that's about the right yeah. hormones being released at the right time it's yeah. worth me saying that this is your story and anything you share is not a reflection on the difference between what Helen went through and what you went through. But I can only imagine how exhausted you must have felt during this process because Helen was in it. It was happening to her. But as a birth partner... I know how tiring it is to be not having the flood of hormones and to be there and not eating and drinking as much as you probably should have yeah. done either. What did you feel like physically after that experience? Physically, I was exhausted because I think from an observation standpoint, like my adrenaline was was completely raised. I was stood or sat twitching and, and going, right, you know, what can I do now? But also the emotional side of things when Helen was being constantly monitored, people coming in and out of the room, going off shift, coming back on shift, making comments about Helen going through this horrible time. When, like I said earlier, from a protective standpoint, you're sat there going, God, I wish they'd just shut up. And Similarly, there's this internal struggle in, in your own head of going, what can I do? Should I do something? But then we're encouraged to trust the, the in inverted commas, professional uh, standpoint of, of, the, of the experts. And so there's a back and forth as an internal tug of war. There's uh, loved ones messaging you, trying to ring you, going, what's happening? How far is she dilated? You know, all of this stuff when... Really, you just want to be there and you want to be present and, and helpful, but also calm. And it's really, really difficult to do that, especially with, you know, for us in that hospital environment, it, it's so unnatural. It's so false and cold and, uh, what am I looking for? Sterile. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for, 
you know, especially for Helen and I, we're we're warm people. We we it's all about love and comfort and and sharing experiences and and that. So for me, afterwards, even when she was here, when Amelia had arrived, it was like we both, all three of us in the room. I remember sitting on the very uncomfortable chair and Helen being completely passed out on the bed because it had been almost three days and Amelia being in these clothes and being passed out on the table over on the other side and me being passed out on the chair and the three of us just sort of passed out and we were just there like, okay, thank God that's over and done with now. Yeah. Which in hindsight, looking back was like, gosh, what a horrible way to do it. Mm. There was no sort of excitement. Uh, I hate to to kind of relate it to this false narrative when you see it in movies of people just being a little bit sweaty and and then maybe coming out and having a little cry, but then being quiet and and then them just looking lovingly into this baby's eyes and and that tear rolls down their face. And, you know, it, it couldn't have been further from that. It was genuinely just a, it was a relief just for it to be over. Yeah. And there was no sort of moment of connection with Amelia whereby we went, wow, she's here. Because we also didn't know. We decided not to find out the gender. So even when she was born, We'd completely forgotten to check what she was. It was just more of a, thank goodness that's over. And I was focused on Helen. I obviously looked at Amelia's face, which had bruises on and all that from forceps and all those things. And, you know, the nurse then goes, well, do you not want to know what she is? And it was like, oh, gosh, yes. You know, it was such a secondary thought. Absolutely. There was no presence, no love, no want to be there. So, again, when that was done, the relief was over. We passed out and slept for gosh knows how long. And then it was like, okay, off you go. And yes, not just off you go, but off you go and survive with a newborn when you're in this exhausted condition. Yeah. I can't imagine. I, I want to pick up on a couple of things. The first thing is the, the mammalian need to protect because you are, as a, a male person, you are built with this need to protect. There is an innate thing within us that makes us behave in a way that we are typically men protect, women nurture. It's something that we don't really have much choice over for the most part. So I can't even imagine what you must have gone through sat in that room, losing that control and feeling like, oh, shit, how am I ever going to talk myself out of what went on here in the postnatal period? Because you couldn't keep that for yourself and you were unable to, in theory, protect her. Most of us who teach antenatal education will talk about this as the Mr. Fix-It scenario. And there was no fixing this situation. You were on that train and it was hurtling towards the station and you couldn't get off and you could see it all crumbling around you. And I just wanted to validate that for you because I can't imagine how that must have felt. But 
I can imagine it must have been quite awful. Secondly, I wanted to talk about the family members and keeping up with providing them with information because on day one it feels quite exciting doesn't it because you're you're messaging and you're like oh not much to update but you still think that things might be happening soon and this is the day your baby's going to be born but by the time you get into the next day and then the next day were they as frantic as I can only imagine they must have been yeah yeah they were which in turn has its own pressures on yeah. the two of us because I don't think Helen, by the end, was aware of any of that, to be honest. I think because of her exhaustion and inability to focus on anything else other than what was going on. For me, it became a massive juggling act because, like, you know, and I think your first point about that, Mr. Fix It, feeling they're, they're linked, they're innately linked yeah. um, because. That internal struggle only becomes stronger when you're being pulled in one direction, but you want to be with the other. And and actually, the the lack of ability to focus on either of them properly mm. only worsened the situation for me anyway. I think going back to the, the protection side of things, what I think made it more difficult was I wasn't prepared to be in that situation. If I'd have known six months earlier that, okay, the the labor might be really super difficult. You're going to have to produce your strength and you're going to have to be there. If I'd have known that in advance, and don't get me wrong, by no means was I sat there thinking, oh, it's only labor, it'll be fine. You know, it was, I knew it was going to be difficult, but the outcome of what it was was not even a thought in my mind. So that hit me out of nowhere anyway. And actually it affected me much more afterwards than it did whilst I was there or at least that I was aware of whilst I was there. When I looked back at it in the weeks, months after Amelia was born, I then subconsciously started being overly protective to an unhealthy manner. So I was actually being more destructive by being overly protective because subconsciously I was going, I have to prove I'm able to protect because I couldn't do it then. And it it led me to doing, you know, really silly things, which then in turn had an impact on mine and Helen's marriage, which, you know, fortunately we're present enough to, to go down the right paths to talk about it and communicate and deal with it honestly and, and healthily. But that then is now still something that I'm having to deal with because my instinct when we found out that Helen was pregnant for the second time that old trigger came straight back in because all those things that I pushed to the back of my mind of what Helen went through and what I went through immediately came rushing forward. So I was then wrapping Helen back in bubble wrap, even in the first few weeks of pregnancy when she wasn't particularly affected. So I then went into mega, mega protection. So I was encouraging her to stay in bed all day, every day. I'll deal with everything. I'll ring everyone. I'll do all the work. And, and that's what I took on myself, which, again, was just a repeat of what I did seven years ago, uh, which caused so many problems, which is why it was so important to me to do it differently this time as a birth partner so that I wasn't making the wrong choices for us as a family, because that's what I had done. 
my mental health was at such a bad place that I was making really bad choices and it was affecting my relationship with my daughter and my wife. So then again, at that time, I wasn't fully aware when Amelia was born that I was going to be as affected as I was. And obviously parents innately have this protection. So when Helen's parents hadn't heard anything for six hours and were trying to ring or message going, what's going on? Where is she? How's she doing? My inability to help Helen came across in my lack of presence to her because I was trying to contact the parents. And in turn, it was like a big seesaw of, well, who do I focus on? Well, I can do this communication with the parents. That's something I can do. So maybe I should do that. And then being pulled back because Helen had passed out in between the contraction again. So it was like, I go back to the exhaustion, you know, I three days of no sleep, three days of trying to communicate the right thing with anyone that would hear me or listen to me and trying to say the right thing to Helen when really not know why or how to say the right thing. Because I didn't know what she was experiencing. And I didn't know, like you said, that cascade of intervention. I didn't know what was going to come next. So it was a very, very, it's a very lonely place if you don't understand what to do or how to do it. It's a very, very lonely place because you're stuck only with yourself and the self-deprivation that comes with your inability to, to help. And like you say, there's that protection side of things with males that I think is very unhealthily just hidden away and this lack of desire to talk and, and communicate so for me it was like okay I went through that route I didn't talk for probably three four years about how it had affected me and very quickly realized that I had gone through depression myself and gone through the severe anxiety and then I know Helen talked about our story of what we've been through as a family as well after Amelia was born. So to go through that with the birth and then to question your inability as a provider and protector again four years later, it was like, okay, we're doing this all again. So, yeah, very, very difficult time. And I think, like you say, lonely was the word. It was a very lonely place to be sometimes. That's so insightful and I think really, really helpful for other people to hear because this is where the preparation for me really comes in and potentially building on your team in order to make sure that that isn't an experience that you have as a birth partner. If you can't afford a doula, there are other people you can bring on board. They need to be the right people as we discovered yeah. with uh, Hope's birth, you had someone come in and support you as a family, but that wasn't a family member. That was someone who was very much in tune with you as a couple. And so yeah. picking the right people to be in your birth team is essential. Do you have a copy of my books yet? These award-winning, best-selling books are changing lives for tens of thousands of couples across the world as they are bridging the gap between what you learn on a standard antenatal education program and what actually happens in the birth room. Labour of Love, The Ultimate Guide to Being a Birth Partner is fondly described as the Bible for partners. 
This book is intended to be read by the pregnant woman and her partner so that they both recognise how fundamental their role is to her success when planning, preparing and giving birth to her baby. It offers a level of education that is not typically taught and shares hundreds of tips learned on my journey as a professional birth partner for over 20 years. In my book, The Art of Giving Birth, I am focusing specifically on physiological birth. So many of you are desperate to achieve an unmedicalized birth, but don't know how. Throughout the chapters, I share my five key principles which will advance the knowledge you already have and support you and your partner to really understand what it takes to give birth physiologically. The first chapter of this book is available as a free download. You can find the link in the show notes or in my link tree on Instagram. I have also created a journal to accompany this book specifically to help support the process of identifying who you are as a person and what areas you might need to work on in order to overcome some of the common obstacles faced within the maternity system. The work that comes from not only reading The Art of Giving Birth, but carrying out the suggestions within, will guide you from knowing what you want to achieve to actually having the confidence to do it. Lastly, I have designed a journal with a variety of different cover options to suit all that are aimed at planning and preparing for birth in general, which make great gifts for anyone who loves to make lists, document their pregnancy journey and explore their feelings. All of my books and journals are available to order now from Amazon across the world or any online bookstore by typing my name, Sally Ann Beresford into the search engine at the top, or you can get copies direct from me, Sally Ann at birthability.co.uk, or DM me on Instagram at the ultimate birth partner. If you already have a copy, I would be so grateful if you could leave a rating and review to help others find my books and journals. This is so important so that others can benefit from the knowledge and wisdom shared within the pages. Now back to this episode. I mean, I describe a lot of men as rabbits in headlights when they're at a birth because they are just staring at the lights going, I just don't know what the fuck to do. And they're just unable to move. And they'll never get it right either way, really, because they just don't know enough. You know, when your description of contacting the family members was was brilliant, because as you know, in my book, I, I write about, please try not to let them know if you can, because you can absolutely avoid informing people of what is going on. That responsibility is not on your shoulders. I mean, OK, fair enough. Going missing for three days might cause concern if the mum is used to messaging every day and saying, how are you, darling? Any signs of the baby yet? But you could easily fake a message and send one back saying, oh, no, you know, Mike's taking me out for lunch today. I'll call you later or, you know, something to kind of like head off the conversations that might normally take place. But if anyone is listening to this podcast episode and they are 
able to avoid letting people know what they're about to embark on, I would highly recommend it because it does mean that you do not have to go through the pressure of having to let everybody know on a consistent basis what the hell is going on because it, it does it does put Absolutely. a lot more yeah. on your shoulders. And do, do you know what? That was something that we, you know, after I'd read your book, it was one of the main things. First of all, the first time we didn't have a birth plan, which <laughs> in hindsight was like, oh, God, what are we doing? But this time we, we'd kind of chosen every sort of detail, but not in an unhealthily controlling way. It was, it was a, it was strong guidelines that we wanted to follow, but knew that if they needed to change, you know, we were, we were open to that. And those strong and soft boundaries that we, you know, you talk about. And we'd already said, you know, both our parents, my mum and Helen's mum, had, had shown a desire to want to be there when they found out we were wanting to do a home birth. And it's very easy to slip into that thing of, well, okay, you can come and sit in the corner if you want to, but because they're your parents and very hard to say no to them sometimes because you don't want to piss them off. But we'd said very early on, if we're doing this, we're doing it our way and we will do it and we'll tell you exactly how we're going to do it. And we'd said to them, I will let you know when she goes into labor. I will try and update you, but if you don't hear anything, just trust that we're doing the right thing and everything's going to be going the way it's meant to be going. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, this labor was significantly shorter than the first one, <laughs> which was a, a relief all around. But it was just much easier to manage having put those boundaries in place beforehand. And fortunately, we had very understanding parents. And despite them still messaging little things and kind of any update, it was like I would read it and just leave it and kind of go, look, that's not important right now. And just before I forget, I'd really love to go back to what you mentioned about we had someone come and assist. It was very funny for me because when Helen first mentioned that she wanted someone else to be there, my ego kicked in massively. And I went into a place of, great, she doesn't even want me there now, which is completely irrational because I think after Helen did her, she did some trauma sessions on the first birth, we had a, a really big discussion afterwards and a very tearful discussion where she actually went you know the first time I played a much bigger part than I thought I did which is after eight years is the first time to hear that but not only to understand that was was actually quite profound to me so then after that for her to say well I'd love someone else to be there I was a bit like oh wow and it took a lot for me to kind of I remember reading in your book about what the what the mum wants, you know, she gets. And that's because it's very difficult to sit here and and not have your ego kick in because of that protective thing of going, well, she doesn't need anyone else because I can do it. Let me show you I can do it. And that, that, to to step away from that and actually understand, well, it's best for her and it's best for baby. And actually, when I'd come to terms with it, and accepted it and I was totally fine with it. I'm so glad that we did have someone else there because it allowed me to be the present partner that 
I didn't realize I wanted to be until that moment. And whilst Helen was in the pool, I must have spent the best part three hours just kneeling by the side of it, holding her hands while she was going through her waves, as we called them on the day. That's all I needed to do. And actually, for me, that was like such a relief because there was someone else covering the other side of things. And Helen had done so much amazing work. I just remember when Helen's parents came and visited, I took a moment to speak to them and say, look, you should be so proud. And and I was filled with just absolute immeasurable pride in Helen because of how she dealt with it and the strength she showed and how different it was from the first one. Because again, from a selfish standpoint, I was there in the back of my mind going, Jesus, I really hope it's not like the first time. And not just for Helen's sake, but for mine, because I didn't want to go through another five years of depression and anxiety and having to relive those moments of things going wrong or potentially going wrong. I didn't want that. Selfishly, I didn't want that. So to have made the choices we made, to have that other person there who could deal with the things that I didn't need to deal with. All I needed to do was to be there with Helen sat next to her, breathing with her, you know, encouraging her, using the right words and listening to her, which is a big thing because she didn't talk much, but when she did, it was the word she used was super important. And that allowed me to be able to understand where she was at in the labor process, but also then to be able to communicate with the midwives. And if I was trying to do 10 different things, I probably wouldn't have heard that properly. Absolutely. Um, It's the being not doing. That's what we call it, isn't it? You know, when you are truly able to be present with somebody, there is nothing you need to do but be present and that's it. And if a birth partner can fully understand what their role involves, I think that it would be a much nicer experience for birth partners on the whole because they wouldn't fear it and they wouldn't be that rabbit in headlights. Obviously, with medical intervention, there's a slightly different role that you play as an advocate for that person. But on the whole, when labour is going well, there's nothing you have to do but just to be there. I mean, it's fair to say that most people under the circumstances of what your first birth was like, when they discover they're pregnant again, it's usually going to go either high-level C-section, I'm never doing that again, just get the baby out, or it's going to go the low-tech physiological route. Most people will go to one extreme or the other. Not that they're extremes, and I don't want it to sound like that, but they're either end of the spectrum. and. The middle of the road bit, which was what I would describe as a managed birth, is where the vast majority of people end up. But when you've already been down the managed route, you know you're not going to want to do it that way again. So, you know, the vast majority of my clients, at least, are all going down one path or the other. So when you discovered that Helen was pregnant, was there any part of you that thought, just have a C-section? First of all, when she told me, I thought she was joking, which I, <laughs> I took as a very, very sick joke. <laughs> because uh, friends of ours had just announced, or they'd gone through the IVF journey, and it's 
taking them ages to get pregnant. And we were so overwhelmed and uh, proud of them. And then Helena picked me up from work one day and plumped this test on my lap. And I went, why have you brought her test? Why are you showing me? As in our friend's test, I was like, why are you showing me this? And she went, it's mine. I was like, oh, God. (laughs) And that was, you know, that's not meant in a bad way. It was purely a reaction to kind of, we'd come to terms with the fact that we weren't going to have another child. And where we were at that time was, it it wouldn't, (laughs) it certainly wasn't something we were planning to do. It wasn't like, okay, well, this is it. We're doing it now. That's kind of not where we were. And immediately, like I said, I was triggered into, I'm not doing that again. Equally for her and for me, we're not doing that again. You know, we did have the conversation about C-section. And I said, in the, you know, by no means was I trying to control uh, the choice, but I was, I was so eager to stay away from that managed birth. I was desperate to stay away from it. So it was, it really was a case of, well, it'll be C-section and we'll deal with it that way, or we're going to put the effort in and we're going to do it right. And I say right, because after the experience, for me, it's such a beautiful, perfect way of doing it that it was the right way for us to do it. Mm. And yeah, so C-section really was it was it was like you say it was one way or the other and even when we were going for the because of helen's age she was high risk which don't get me started you know i (laughs) I, it's i find the whole thing a bit absurd that she could be two months over the age of 40 and be considered high risk or two months under 40 and be a normal birth that to me doesn't really makes sense that that that's just absurd but yeah so going into the hospital for the scans going and at the time thinking we had to go and have the consultant appointments was like we were allowing ourselves and and actually choosing to put ourselves back in that environment whereby we were coming away triggered and we were going in with our ammunition around our belts, kind of ready to battle because that's not what we wanted to do. And it took us, you know, a couple of visits to go, why are we doing this? And it was at the same time we were reading your book going, well, why? I don't understand why we're doing this. We don't want this environment. So why are we actively choosing to be in the environment? Why are we going do you know what? We're having a home birth, but let's go and torture ourselves for an hour in the hospital <laughs> just to yeah. wind ourselves up again. It, 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 it took a couple of visits for us to kind of ask the question, take a step back and go, I don't particularly want to go in and discuss induction because she might be two weeks late in inverted commas. I don't see why we're doing it. So from then on, Helen decided to do telephone calls with the consultant. And the last one, we even just cancelled and said we we weren't going to do it. And she went into labor, I think the day after the consultant appointment was supposed to be. And then the day Hope was born, the letter arrived from the hospital to say, here's your new appointment. And I was saying to Helen, do you think we should just go in with the baby and go, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> you know, it, it's such, and you know, it, it, we go back to that 
majesty of choice. And it's something I'd really encourage everyone to do is just ask the right questions and then make the right decisions for you as a family, because the way we did it may not be the right way for other people because they may have particular worries or there may be, like I said earlier, actual medical reasons as to why they have to go through that process. And then you deal with it as and when it happens, but be clued up on it and do that work beforehand. And we've even got friends who are expecting their baby in the next couple of weeks. And we'd seen them, they came to the baby shower, Helen's baby shower, our baby shower. And I was sat with the mum and we were just talking and I was like, please get your husband to read your book. You know, because not only for the tips and understanding of how to deal with it then and there, but also there's so much terminology that gets thrown about in the hospital environment that you, I had no idea what it meant. And if I had no idea what it meant, then how am I going to be there to understand and communicate that with Helen if she's not in a state to hear it and understand it herself? And, you know, it's, it's quite a common occurrence because my sister's a nurse so when she found out that we were having a home birth she wasn't overly enamored with the idea <laughs> but you know again that took a conversation going we've done research we know what we want to do we want to do it differently and she throws lots of terminology around and i have to stop every three minutes to go uh, miss can you tell me what that means you know <laughs> so you know it, it really is a case of just do the research, ask questions, have that choice, because choice is something that is divinely ours. We should never feel like we have to be told how to go down a route when having a child, because it's our child, you know, it, it's part of us, it's, it's an extension of us. And so you have that right, and that divine right to go, well, no, this is what I want to do, which I don't think people fully appreciate or at least understand because we're trained very very early on in life that the medical profession is is experts and they are an authority and we have to listen to what they're saying and actually so much that's in your book especially in terms of just figures and statistics and were so new to me this time around that when we were in that environment of consultant appointments and they'd say something, it gives you the ability to go, well, that's not actually fully the case. And you know that this is the case and and we'd like to do it this way. And I think what a really lovely moment was in our last in-person consultant appointment where we got to the end of the conversation and he just went, well, I'm going to book another appointment, but I'm fully prepared for you to just turn up and we'll have exactly the same conversation. And we went, yep, we'll see you then. Unfortunately, hope came before that appointment anyway. So, mm. yeah. Let's talk about doing the work in adverted commas because you, you mentioned that phrase and I love that because it, sometimes it's hard to understand what that means. When you were encouraged to read the book, because let's be honest, most men won't. There are going to be a lot of women who listen to this podcast episode and they wish that their partner would read it and they know that they won't. And I always say, and you might find this a bit harsh, but I always say, well, if they're not going to do the work, then actually they don't deserve to be there because if they don't 
have the time to put the input in to understand what it takes to support a physiological birth, then are they the right birth partner for you? And usually that kind of conversation does often lead to a reluctant male picking up the book and maybe managing a few pages. And sometimes I say to the women, well, just put post-it notes in the pages that you feel are the most important. And then at least they can read the bits that are relevant to your philosophies and your wishes and how you're wanting your birth to go. So at the very minimal, they've at least understood some elements of the book. But you actually told me that you not only read it once, but you went back and revisited parts of it more than once. And I can only imagine that's because having been through one birth experience, there must have been quite a lot of light bulb moments for you. Do you want to describe what it was like for you to read that book and and what it felt like learning some of that stuff? Yeah, I think, first of all, I completely agree with the fact and this comes from the experience of our first birth, if there are husbands, partners out there who are reluctant to, as you say, do the work and to do that reading and to take the time to understand, I really don't think they should be there. And so there's a desire within me to say either do the work and if you want to be there, you have to do it because if you don't do it, you're going to experience what I experienced, which means five years of internal struggle, depression, anxiety, you know, automatic response whereby you're making wrong decisions and and ultimately making things a lot worse. And if you are going to do it, do it properly. Because again, and I go off the experience of the first birth, nothing I had done in that build up to that had prepared me for what Helen was going to go through. Because it was cascade of intervention. It was like a checklist of all the things that could go wrong. Okay, let's get the clipboard out and tick the next one, which I don't think people understand how much it will affect them because I think there's a strange feeling that, well, it's just something that the mum goes through and you just kind of stand on the sidelines and wait for the baby to be there. That's really not the case. And if you are going to be there, then you have to prepare yourself for all outcomes really because you have to be there present ready to do the right thing and so for me when it came to the second birth there was an innate feeling within me a desire to go i need to know more not just for helen because helen had read your book and actively said to me i want you to read it not you need to read this she wanted me to read it which then triggered me to go, well, I want to read it as well because I need to read it <laughs> for myself and, and for Helen. And first of all, just really, really simple things that when I read your book were light bulb moments. I, I go back to the, the majesty of choice. That for me was a real light bulb moment because, as I said not long ago, you feel you have to do what you're being told under the guidance of, again, in quotations, experts. There is a, yes, I'll do what you say. Thank you for that. I'll be there. Oh, you want her to be induced? Okay, we'll be there and we'll prepare for that. That's for what is best for them and and how to do it for them and not actually what what's best for mum and for baby necessarily 
And then we look at just really, really, really simple things like the different stages of labor, how to understand that and where Helen was and where she was in that journey of the labor. And I guess, you know, I could go on and on and on. There are so many things I took from reading the book. And actually, it was more hindsight based on our first pregnancy, where because we talk about the big baby issue, and actually, your in your book you talk about the the kind of statistics around shoulder dystocia and and, and the likelihood of all of it. When actually, when you're first told that in the environment eight years ago, and they're using words like shoulder dystocia, and you know, for someone who's a trained actor who pretends to be other people at that time. That's what I used to do back then. It was like, oh my gosh, there are two big words that are very scary and I must listen to what you said. And in Helen, we should definitely avoid the shoulder dystocia that they're talking about. But reading your book, and actually I remember lying in bed a number of times reading certain bits and gone, God, Helen, I'm reading this. Had we known this last time, we wouldn't have listened or we would have done things completely differently. So for anyone who's going into their second pregnancy, following a, a particularly traumatic one, I would encourage people to read the book because there's a certain aspect of healing about it. Yeah. For because sure. it, it, for me, it was like, well, I had avoided going back over it for eight years because it was particularly traumatic for me. So I had avoided going back over it. So to sit there and read the actual kind of truth and, and the facts about what could happen, as opposed to what you choose to happen, you know, it is actually quite a healing process because you go, right, okay, well then let's do it differently this time. And it gives you the right tools to, to manage all of it in a more healthy way. And the proof is in the pudding. How Helen I, you know, hope is seven weeks old today as we're recording this the seven weeks after this birth compared to the seven weeks after amelia's birth are leagues apart and that's born through preparation healing understanding presence organization all those beautiful things that your book guides people to do on that on that process of having a baby so yeah when I read all of it, and there were a couple of times where, you know, you're lying in bed and you think you've read it. No, oh, hang on a second. I think that was really important. I think I need to read it again. And differences between women. You know, we. I think for me especially, and this may just be me, is that when it comes to pregnancy, all women are put into a pot and treated the same way. When actually... Everyone is completely different. It's yeah. such an individual process. It's so particular to that person that everything has to be done individually. And so being in that hospital environment is they go off, you know, percentiles and, and measurements when actually a measurement may affect a mum a different way yeah. based on a previous birth than it would uh, this mum who's, you know, a different height. Everyone's lumped into the same cauldron of intervention, if that makes sense, and going, okay, let's deal with this. That it's a checklist to them as well. When the personal aspect of of having a baby is completely missed, and that's 
really something that comes across in your book, the individuality of all of it. And even just really simple things like labor positionings, um, all of that stuff that was, again, previously we didn't have to deal with because Helen was like on a hospital bed for yeah. two and a half days. Where, Ethered to the bed was, by monitors and belts. Absolutely, and, yeah. yeah. So my, my assistance wasn't even a concept with the first birth. So this time around, it was like, okay, what can I do? Where can I stand? And the importance of communication as well, which is between mom and birth partner. That was super, super important to us because with me, I didn't want to sit there and just kind of sit and watch. There was right times to ask a question. There were wrong times to ask a question. There were right times to shut up. (laughs) And there were wrong times to shut up as well. So, you know, your kind of guidance on that was, was really important for me, definitely. Well, I mean, I congratulate you because you were the one that put in the effort and the time and what it took to really understand Helen's philosophies and what she needed from you. Because as you've just beautifully described, it is a very individual journey and each pregnancy and birth is different. And what one person wants one time isn't necessarily the same as what they might want the next time. So in this example, what you've done is you've worked your way through the pregnancy. You didn't always know that Helen was going to have a home birth. It was only towards the end, those last possibly 10 weeks or so. I can't remember exactly what the time frame was, but there was a point where you both tripped into this is going to happen. This is definitely what we're going to do now. And then from that point on, it was action stations. Everything got ordered and prepared and ready and the space became exactly what she wanted. And and you organised your childcare for Amelia and Everything was just sorted so that it's that control versus control chapter where you have to put in all these things that give you control over the environment and everything. But then on the day, you can let go of control and let the body do its job. Because actually, once you know everything is exactly how you want it, there is nothing more to do than trust the process. And so that's what I certainly understood from Helen's story and talking to her. And you were there and you were perfect. You were everything she needed and more. And that's not to say that wasn't what you were last time, but this time you also felt that you were part of the process in the way that you wanted to be present, which was such a gift for you. I mean, Describe that moment when you knew that hope was coming. What was that like? What was it like when she, it was obvious that Helen was pushing and she was going to be with you soon? So (laughs) all of the experience of nine hours that it was felt brand new, simply because we got little milestones that we never had with the first birth. So when Helen's waters broke, it was exciting and a bit like, oh, wow, we now know what it's like for you to have your waters break. And, and first of all, to then let the adrenaline to calm down a little bit and, and kind of go, okay, we've talked about this. We know what we want to do. Let's put it in place. So Helen came downstairs and put some friends on the TV and, and just sat and chilled. And I stayed upstairs and let her do her thing. And I think one of the things for me after what we had been through in the first time was, and this is not in a judgy way, it was I needed to get to a level where 
I could trust Helen to do what she wanted to do. And that's not because I didn't think she could do it. It was from my desire to protect and control standpoint. So I needed to get to a place where I was so comfortable that Helen knew exactly what she wanted to do and she would be able to do it. So first of all, that was something I had to work on. And then while we were in that place of hope coming, it was like, okay, this is happening now. And do you know what was probably the nicest part of all of it was after Amelia had been picked up by my parents at um, two in the morning, half two in the morning, whatever it was, it was just the two of us. And we got that time, you know, even though Helen was having contractions, we got that time to go, okay, this is this is it. And not be in that sterile environment with big neon lights and monitors going off. It was the candles, it was the music, it was chilled. Obviously, we had the noise of putting the pool up and filling it and all that type of stuff. But it was so... It just felt like it was family affair as opposed to a medical procedure, which was really, really lovely and something that I'll always remember. And Helen had spoken weeks before when when we decided we were going to do the home birth because it wasn't something we decided straight away. It was after we'd gone, we don't want to be in the hospital environment. And then we went and met the home birth team who were doing like a cafe day, come and meet the team type thing. After speaking to them that we knew that was the energy we wanted to be around, that they were the people we wanted to be there and present. And so when Helen had said weeks and weeks before, she had this vision, she had this image of pulling hope out of the water and straight onto her chest. And that vision was so strong with her. That it brought me comfort with it as well. And, and also going, okay, well, that's what we're aiming towards. That's our goal. That's what we're aiming for. And yes, it was very exciting. Obviously, there were anxious moments, but it was so much calmer than it was the first time around. And it had gotten to, so Hope was born around quarter past eight in the morning. And it had gotten to quarter past seven in the morning and one of the midwives just went like can i have a word i went yeah sure but took me over and she'd seen helen had started to push or that's what they thought helen had started to push so then we've all acknowledged she was in that phase and we'd gotten to 10 to 8 and the midwife called me over again and just sort of went when we get to quarter past eight helen will have been pushing for an hour And in the hospital environment, if she's been pushing for an hour, it means we will need to examine her and do those things, which was the first time throughout the whole process of being in the labor that it felt anywhere near close to that intervention site that we had experienced first time around. So that immediately made me filled with a little bit of anxiety. However, I'd done the reading. I knew Helen didn't want those vaginal examinations. So I knew that was a hard boundaries she didn't want them unless we'd gotten to a point where it was like medically an emergency so i made the decision i wasn't going to tell her what the midwife had said because it meant she would have had to have gotten out of the pool she would have had to have laid down on the sofa or they would have encouraged an examination so i'd said 
to myself, I'm not going to tell her. And this was 10 to 8. So there was 20 minutes, 25 minutes of anxiety within me, but also wanting to be there and present. And we got to 10 past 8. And the midwife walked over to the pool and said, Helen, could you just reach and see if you can feel baby's head? And the relief I had when, <laughs> when she said yes, when she said yes, and she smiled because I knew then she wouldn't have to get out of the pool. Yeah. I knew none of those things that she knew she didn't want was not a conversation I was going to have to have with her. So I immediately was like, thank you. <laughs> you know, I was internally beaming because I knew we were going down the right path and it's, she was going to get what she wanted. And then there was just that moment when Helen got what she'd envisaged, which was hope coming into the water, lifting her out and putting her on her chest and, and waiting for that little cry, which feels like an hour of, of waiting, but it's only a few, you know, it's a good 10, 15 seconds or whatever it was. So, yeah. And I can't express enough the, and I mentioned it earlier, not only sort of relief that it had gone the way we wanted it to go, but also just the immeasurable pride I had in in Helen, because I came away from that with, you know, for married couples who are very strongly married, there is always an appreciation of the other person. There's always a just respect and, and appreciation of what they do and how they do it. But after watching the birth this time, I didn't think I could be more in awe of the process of all of it. And I just came away with them a real kind of newfound appreciation of her, but not only her, the female body and what it can do and what it was made to do. And then, you know, I I hate to admit it, but a bit of pride in myself, um, which was coming away from it. And Helen and I have spoken about it afterwards that we were to each other exactly what we needed to be to provide the best birth possible and and, and the best beginning to to life on this little planet that hope could ask for. And all of that came from preparation. Uh, it really did. And I just want to add, Mike, that what you did at the end there you really did protect her because in my experience, what was going on was those midwives were heading to a shift change and they were probably getting quite a lot of pressure from the maternity unit to find out whether they should stay or whether they should go because actually there would have been a new team beginning their shift between 7.30 and 8.30 and without having a vaginal examination, they didn't know whether it would have been appropriate to up and leave Helen at that stage and have a new team come in. So what you did was actually protect her from all of that going on, because otherwise there would have been a really big discussion and your baby might not have been born for many hours afterwards because it would have slowed yeah. down the process. It would have stopped her in her tracks. Yeah. not enabled that part of the oxytocin and the adrenaline dance to go on where she switched from being in the dilation stage to being in the pushing stage. 
And ultimately, you did everything you needed to in that moment to ensure that she wasn't affected by that question and by that comment and that introduction of guidelines that they were bringing into that experience purely because you were heading into a shift change. So well done, because you actually really did make a massive difference for her. And that's probably the biggest thing in terms of difference from the first one to the second one. And all of that's born about by reading your book is the first time round, not only was I eight years younger, but also having been told that if they'd have turned around and said, we need to do this, I would have, irregardless of what condition Helen was in, probably would have gone, oh shit, and go and speak to Helen and say, Helen, the baby needs to come in the next 25 minutes. Otherwise you're going to have to do that, which after reading your book and the importance of oxytocin is so counterproductive. And that probably is the biggest difference from last time to, to this time is my change of mindset, my understanding of what was most important and my ability to make the right decisions for Helen, who in that situation is relying on me to make the right decisions. Yeah, she um, trusted you. So, yeah, and and I think that's that's probably the biggest thing, definitely. Wow, what an amazing story. I, I'm, I couldn't be more grateful for the time that you've given and the stories that you've shared and all those nuggets that have come out of this episode because I know it's going to be really helpful. Mike, do you have a top tip for anyone who's listening from your perspective? You told me before we started recording that you were going to ask me this. <laughs> and I immediately went, oh, God, I've got to think of a top tip. But I hadn't thought about it. But then the it's just come to me as you've asked. Ask the mum what she wants. That's probably the best tip I can give. Because mm-hmm. what she wants is is so important. If she wants a C-section, then support her in having a C-section. If she wants a home birth, support her in that. If she wants minimal talking in the actual labour, you need to know that. So, yeah, just ask her what she wants and be brave enough to stick to it. Because hopefully that last thing we just talked about, if you've got the courage to stick to what she wants and, and understand what she wants, you make the right decisions that right for her and, and right for the birth and ultimately right for baby and mum. So. Perfect. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Where You're can people well. find you, Mike? You can find me on Instagram. So as I said, Helen and I are holistic coaches and, and uh, we do energy healing and meditation and things like that. My method of work is a little bit different to what Helen's is, but you can find me on Instagram and my handle is the dragon guy, which is comes with a bunch of questions. But uh, if if you do choose to come and find me on Instagram, then all will be revealed. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And th- thank you for the book because it it really did change my life. So, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Ultimate Birth Partner Podcast and listening to this episode. I love having deep and thoughtful discussions about all things labour and birth. If you enjoyed it, please leave a rating and review and share it with your friends.
If you want to receive a notification of the next episode, then don't forget to hit subscribe. If you would like to purchase either of the books that accompany this podcast, then head over to your online bookseller and search for Labour of Love, The Ultimate Guide to Being a Birth Partner or The Art of Giving Birth, Five Key Physiological Principles. Follow me on Instagram at The Ultimate Birth Partner and if you go to the link in my bio, you will find my Linktree page which has all the links you need to access many of my services, including booking a course for you and your partner to learn how to succeed in achieving your dream birth. Oh, 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 oh,